Welcome to By Your Love, where we discuss the excellent and praiseworthy things in Christchurch, here and abroad. I am your host, Caleb Allen, together with my good friend, Ryan Somerville. How are you doing today, Ryan? Doing pretty well. Getting ready to get back into the office after the customary pastor's day off on Monday. And it's a good way to start the new week by sitting here and having a little bit of a chat about how it is we can love one another and discuss God's word together and see what he has in store for us this week. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, we had some some encouraging uh, events on the Lord's Day, uh, which which included good times of fellowship and and uh, the session being united on a on a particular matter. So yeah, it's been it's been good. And then a a good day off. We had some rain, but we can still take a walk in the rain, and we did. Well, the bigger question is whether or not you had some wind. We actually we had a little bit of wind, so not not as much. So the rain wasn't so like dreadfully cold as it would have been with a high wind. <laughs> All right, so we are jumping today into Ephesians chapter three. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses fourteen through 21. And you know at this point I'm just going to turn it over to you Ryan, let you let you lead the discussion and and guide us through this passage. Well, I mean the reason we're going to look at Ephesians 4 or sorry, Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21 is before you can really get into the conversation about, you know, how it is we are to love one another and discuss the ways in which we're able to see in our own churches and hopefully uh, people provide for us illustrations and examples of how the, the Lord is working that sanctifying grace and growing people in love in our in our listeners' lives. It's important to realize that before we get there, we actually have something that's a little bit more foundational. And that is understanding that the love that we have for one another is something that flows out of the love that God has for us and beyond that, our comprehension and our apprehension of the love that God has for us. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, is the famous prayer of Paul, in which he expresses to those Ephesian believers that God would enable them to understand the nature, the depth, the breadth, the width, the height, all of that, the nature of God's love for them in Christ. And it's pretty interesting that that's how chapter three ends, because before you get into the do's and don'ts, if you want to frame it that way, of Ephesians, which really begin in Ephesians chapter four, it's not as though there aren't any in the previous chapters, but where it begins to focus on orthodoxy, or I mean, rather orthopraxy, the way that we are to live in our newfound unity in Christ, Paul takes three chapters to express to the Ephesian believers the love that God has had for them and the way that's worked out in their redemption. And so when you come to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one through three is, is kind of really neat. Paul does his typical thing in most of his epistles. You know, he starts off with kind of a systematic theology or rather a, hey, this is what God has done before he moves into what that means for us, how we are to live, what our relationship to God is, what our relationship to others is. And Ephesians isn't any different than that. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, which are for us as Reformed Christians, you know, a traditional proof text 
for predestination and election. But oftentimes, because we get so caught up in that whole discussion of, oh, well, did did, uh, God predestine people to salvation? Is election a real thing? You know, before we get into that discussion, or instead of exclusively being in that discussion, we often lose sight of exactly why it is that Paul is even saying that in Ephesians chapter 1. And the reason that he's saying that is because he is dealing with a new makeup to the covenant community, namely, that is, those who were once outsiders, Gentiles, those who weren't Jews by birth, have now been brought into the family of God, into the kingdom of God, and they've made one with the Jews as Christ's body. And so it's kind of sometimes interesting to contemplate, well, why is it that Paul starts off with this declaration of the love of God shown in Christ through his electing purpose in chapter one? And the answer to that's actually not all that difficult when you think about it a little bit. That is that he's talking to Gentile believers who, in terms of God's historical outworking of his plan of redemption, have largely been excluded from that plan and promise up until this point in time. You know, that the covenants of promise and the ordinances, the scriptures, all of those things resided primarily in the Jewish community. And though in the Old Testament, we see Gentiles coming in here and there. And in the Old Testament, we have prophecies of the coming in of all of the nations. We haven't quite gotten there until the New Testament era, until Christ has accomplished his work and the New Testament church begins, the new covenant community begins to unfold and to grow and to take shape. And so Paul is telling them all of these things in order to assure them of the love that God has already had for them. And that the love of God for them is what forms the basis for their newfound unity with their Jewish brothers in Christ. And ultimately, the basis for living in unity together now as two entities that once had enmity between the two of them, as chapter two will tell tell us, to one that now has fundamental unity in the love of Christ. And so we learn from Paul that it is God's love for us, God's love for Jew and Gentile alike, that is the foundation, the root, the ground for the life of the covenant community and for how it is then we begin to live in light of this unity that we have in the spirit through the triune God. And so if we are going to begin to understand how it is we ought to love one another, and if we are actually going to have a heart of love that does work towards the expression of love for one another, it really starts with comprehending the love that God has for us, the way that God has already demonstrated love to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 21, which, as I said, uh, sort of bring an end to the uh, the theological section of Ephesians, though indeed theology will be continued to be scattered throughout the remainder of the book. But nonetheless, as far as it being the bulk of what he's expressing to the readers and listeners of the epistle, before he gets there, he ends with this prayer that will inform what follows. And we read that beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the rich of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, and here's the key, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So before he even gets to the exhortation of unity and the means by which unity is fostered and grown and the purpose for which unity is fostered and grown, it begins with that idea that first and foremost, we need to be rooted and grounded in love. And that is the love that God has shown for us in his son, Jesus Christ. That his prayer for the Ephesian believers is that they would be able to comprehend the nature of the love of God. Because only those who have been loved and understand it through their having received it are in the position to then know what love is and also begin to show it to others. Is essentially the point that Paul is making there. Yeah, it's he's... He's highlighting this fact that there's no such thing as mindless love. Like it's love requires the use of our minds, the use of our intellect. And even before that, in order for us to understand what it means to love, we have to understand how we have been loved by God and Christ. Calvin uh, would say in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion that in order to know God, one must know himself, right? In order to have a proper theology of God, you have to have a proper theology of man. And we could take that same uh, idea and say that what Paul is getting at here is in order to understand how to love the brethren, you have to understand how you are already loved by God. But you can't divorce the two. Yeah, that's exactly what what we should understand it as, is that our having been loved is what puts us in the position to then love. Uh, and it's not just, you know, it is, it's, it's the idea of intellectual comprehension, but it's a spirit given comprehension. And that's, that's really important. I think in the modern church, in the modern era itself, we kind of moved away from, from the emphasis on the spiritual that the church once had, is we kind of shove the Holy Spirit and his work into the, into the background and don't really think about it all that much and essentially in the process kind of think that we're sort of doing this in our own strength that what the gospel does is kind of free us up to then be able in ourselves to do all of these things but that's just simply not the case we we can't intellectually properly comprehend the love of god and then we can't of course not comprehending it in the mind then comprehend it in in the heart and the seat of the affections if the spirit of god isn't working that within us and that's the reason why it is that Paul prays for this thing. You know, he doesn't say in verse 14, for this reason, I instruct you to understand with your mind the love that God has for you. Rather, he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from the whole family, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you 
according to the rich of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So we need to understand that this is a spirit-wrought comprehension, both in terms of the mind and in terms of the heart, and then flowing out through the hands. So we need to, if we are going to, even before getting, if we're going to love one another, if we're going to begin to um, comprehend the love of God for us, we need to be on our knees asking that he would grant us supernatural comprehension that our intellect wouldn't be mere human intellect and reason that lays hold of these things, but rather it would be sanctified reason that lays hold of these things and gets to the truth of the matter. Uh, Because outside of sanctified reason, all it is is head knowledge, right? It's just a a collection of facts about what God has done uh, that don't necessarily impact you at all. And you don't even really have to believe those facts to be true in order to have those facts in your head. It is the spirit who then takes the, takes the facts and makes them into things that we believe, that we trust, that we rest in, that we properly apprehend and appreciate. So it's really important for us to remember that everything that we talk about moving on from this point in time is all about the work of the spirit within us, not something that we're able to somehow work up on our own. And Paul would have known this in a very experiential way. Like he had all of the intellectual head knowledge about who God is and how God works. Uh, I, I like to say that if we put it in modern terms, Paul had a PhD in Old Testament. Like he knew his Old Testament, he knew uh, the various structures and the theologies and the prophecies. And yet it's not until Christ pierces his heart that he actually comes to a sanctified understanding of even the old testament so yeah it's it's one of those it's one of those things that is i think especially in the reformed community we are sorely lacking as far as this understanding and emphasis on the work of the holy spirit in our hearts as being absolutely necessary. Like intellectually, we get that. We don't always get that in practice, which then makes it like that's an area we can actually learn from our Pentecostal uh, brothers and sisters. As much as we disagree with them theologically, they actually have, I think they've moved in a, in, a bit of a right direction as far as their emphasis on the Holy Spirit, uh, at times a bit too far in emphasizing the Holy Spirit to the detriment of the other two persons. But then as the Reformed community, rather than just, I think, properly weigh how they were swinging that that way as a reaction to to reform communities, we then just added to that by just swinging again. <laughs> so it's it's a good it's a good balancing that's required, uh, where we have to we have to understand any knowledge is mere head knowledge, and and therefore from a from a spiritual standpoint, useless without the spirits working. And without the spirit's active sanctifying of that knowledge. 
Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Um, <clears throat> without the spirit's work, then we are essentially the same as when we began. You know, it's it's kind of really a, a different take on the Galatian heresy, right? When you think about Galatians and the idea there that because the party of the circumcision is is about how you know you're you're in the covenant now and to remain in the covenant community. To remain in right relationship with God, now you had to get circumcised, and if not, then you then you will be eternally lost. So, adding work to what began in the spirit, and Paul's response to that is, "You who started in the spirit, are you now seeking to finish, as it were, in the flesh?" Right. <clears throat> and though while we're not requiring circumcision, if we got to be honest with ourselves, if we're thinking that we begin in the spirit, and that is that the spirit regenerates us, gives us that new birth, takes up residence within us, and now we're in right standing, we're justified, we're right before God, we're part of the covenant community, but now it's up to us to sort of do the rest, and we're kind of guilty of the same mindset, though the expression might be a little bit different. And so if we're picking up our Bibles and we're not sitting there before ever we begin to read them, prayerfully asking that the spirit would give us understanding that would help us to comprehend with the mind, the word that we're reading, and that he would also then drive what we comprehend with the mind deep within the heart so that we embrace what we're reading and understanding, and then give us the strength to use our hands to, to carry out and to play out what we've been reading, understanding, and then embracing with the heart and with the mind. So we have to be really careful about the fact that there is a third person to the Trinity. He plays no small role in the life of faith. And that means in the life of love. And so we need to be reliant upon the spirit of God to give us the ability to comprehend the love of God as Paul is praying for here in chapter three, as opposed to somehow thinking that we can produce this thing in and of ourselves and carry it out in our own strength and on our own power. Uh, So kind of the discussion for us before we even get into into how it is or looking at examples and talking about the ways in which we can see the spirit working his sanctifying grace discussion really is, is how do we begin to understand and to comprehend the love of God? I mean, Paul gives us the first step as it were, a part of the equation that is of course, to bow the knee before the father and ask that he would through his spirit grant us the ability to understand the love of God for us in Christ. But what are some what are some other ways that you can think of to help us comprehend the love of God for us in Jesus Christ? What what are some other means that we can use to that end? Before before speaking to that, let me let me highlight one other aspect. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes there can be this this. I think it's unintentional, whether whether it's intentional or unintentional really doesn't matter. We we want to be careful. Like we're not we're not saying that this is a particular problem for the church member to the exclusion of church officers. Like this is something that even we as as pastors have to wrestle with that that with all of our studying of scripture we still must come humbly uh before the throne of god asking that he would grant us understanding as we read and study his word through the working of his spirit so we're not saying we're not saying that 
this is something the members need to do because the elders already have it sorted out. We're saying that all of us, members in churches and officers in churches, all of us must humbly come before the throne of God, must humbly bow the knee and ask that God would grant understanding and that God would grant this strengthening um, through the Spirit in the inner man to enable us to know and to comprehend the love of God in Christ. So, well, yeah, <clears throat> aren't we glad that uh, perfection isn't a qualification for elders? Yes, there, there would be no elders. But it's kind of to that point, since we're going to go down that rabbit trail a little bit. Um, we can't really teach people how to love if we don't ourselves comprehend how we've been loved. Yeah. And two things, one, our heart won't be in it. And so we'll basically be just hypocrites. We'll be those whitewashed tombs that are worried about our outside, that being our words of the cup being washed, but inside we're devoid of the reality. And so our uh, the inside of the cup is clean. And can't expect that somehow we're going to be effective. God can still use us in all of our imperfections, but that doesn't let us off the hook from actually applying everything that we learn from our studies to ourselves first. And then secondly, uh, you know, people in the pews, regardless of how often they're viewed, aren't stupid. And they pick up on whether or not their spiritual leaders are sincere. Um, they can pick up whether or not their spiritual leaders are sincere, both in the way in which they preach, but also in the way in which they live. You can talk a big talk, but if you're not walking the walk, then all it is is words. So, yeah, we need to, as elders, be really, really thoughtful about that. If we want our hearts to be engaged in the shepherding of our sheep and we want them to love one another, then we need to ourselves be growing and desiring to grow in our own comprehension of the love of God for us and for his sheep. So then we can, from a sincerity of heart and not just as whitewashed sepulchers, begin to teach and instruct the people of God as to how God loves them and then how they ought to love one another. So yeah, that's, that's a really important point to make. To anybody who might be a, an elder or pastor who's listening to this is don't just think of this in terms of, you know, what your congregation needs. Think of it in terms of what you need. And I confess my own need for this. I don't nearly understand the love of God for me in Christ as I ought to. If I understood it as I ought to, then I would love God perfectly because that's reciprocal. That if we really know how much God loved us and understood it, and again, not just intellectually, but in terms of the heart, embracing it resting in it, believing in it, the essence of faith itself. If we understood how we were loved perfectly, then we would love perfectly because yeah. we'd have the perfect response to that love. And so I need to grow in this. I'm reminded of that every day that I need to grow in this as much as anybody else needs to grow in this. Yeah. Yeah. Me, me too. It's, it's one of those things that, that, I think especially for us in ministry can become one of the easiest things to lose sight of. And and so there's a particular need for us as pastors and elders to always keep this before 
our eyes. So let's, you were asking, how do we do that? Well, here's, here's some ideas that, that I have first, obviously start with prayer, right? But, but this, this passage is actually a really good passage to, to pray through. Like even, even if all you did was to take to take verses 14 through 17 and just as you go to start your bible reading as you go to start your day off to to pray through these that that god uh through god in christ through the through the working of the holy spirit would grant this to us that he would grant that we would be strengthened in love and so to to really use this particular passage um as as our prayer that's one way that we can do it uses it as our prayer whether it's for the beginning of the day or or as we start our studies whatever it may be to pray through this asking that that God would grant this and that God's spirit would be working within us as individuals and as uh, as the local body that God would be working in us this comprehension of the love of God in Christ the other yeah. would be to to simplify our bible study simplify it all right and here here's what i mean we can go we can go to google and we can type in for our Google search how to study the Bible. And you can find many, many ways of studying the Bible. And they're all good ways of studying, not knocking any of them. But I think what we should start with is what does this teach me about God? And if we want to hone in particularly on God's love so that we better understand God's love for us and thus are better able uh, to, to imitate that love through the Spirit, then start with the question, what does this teach me about God's love? What does this teach me about how I am to love or how I don't love? And grab a notebook. And write those down. I, I think far too often we go and when it comes to studying the Bible, we're like, you know what? I'll remember it. I don't need to write it down. No, you won't. But let's just be honest. You won't remember it. I won't remember it. And Ryan's definitely not going to remember it. So what we need to do is we need to get into this habit of, of writing it down so that as we study various books of the Bible, when we forget, we can go back to our notebooks and we can revisit those meditations. So what about you? What would what would you recommend? Well, with everything that I would say is kind of in line with what you've already really said. It kind of stole my thunder there, but that's okay. <clears throat> I can add to it just a little bit. We both know that I'm not short on words. so Yes, and I'm very good at stealing your thunder. 
Uh, just to add to what you said about you know coming to scripture, it's all about how we read it. Um, just kind of reminding us that usually a lot of times when we come to scripture, we come to scripture with the perspective, okay, I need to read scripture so I know what to do or what not to do. But scripture wasn't written that simplistically. Yeah. It wasn't written just so we could know what to do and what not to do. Uh, because if it were, then it would simply be a book of law and it would be legalistic and our salvation would be by works and not by grace. Rather, the book of the book of uh, the, the scripture itself is is about who God is and what God has done. Mm-hmm. And that should be the first thing that comes into our mind when we come to scripture. God is revealing himself in his word, who he is and what he has done. And then after we learn who God is and what he has done, then we can begin to worry about the response to who God is and what he has done, right? So we're not primarily coming to the scriptures to first and foremost see how what we shall do and what we shouldn't do. That will come. That will flow naturally. There are prescriptive commands in scripture. There's no doubt about that. It does tell us what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. But it always couches what we ought to do and we ought not to do in terms of what who God is, what God has done. And now if we are in him through faith in Christ, what we are in light of it. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the heart of the gospel, right? <clears throat> it's actually the heart of the, sanct- the life of sanctification. Sanctification, we often think is, oh, well, this is about our conduct and how it is we begin to do the things that we ought to do and the things that we ought and don't, don't do the things that we ought not to do, which is uh, certainly an outworking of sanctification. Sanctification is the Spirit's growing love for us, or love in our hearts for God, and growing us in our faith, and that is our resting in God's Word, our believing His Word. And when those things are grown, then what naturally flows out of those are the things that we do in response to that growth in love and to res- in response and outflowing from, from what faith is. Uh, really, we need to understand the fact that we need to love and believe more before ever we can do more. And so when we come to the scriptures about, well, how it is that I comprehend the love of God and how is it that I love others, we begin by asking the questions you talked about. What does this teach me about who God is and what God has done? That's the primary thing that we should be looking for. And then flowing from that, once we've begun to lay hold of those things and wrestle with those things, then we can ask the questions of, well, what does this mean for me um, in light of who God is and what he has done? Uh, What does this uh, teach me how I am to live as a result? So I echo what you're talking about there. When we pick up our scriptures, sometimes we ought to just take the time to really focus on who God is, what he has done before we begin focusing on what then we shall do as a result. So uh, that's a, that's a good, that's a good piece of advice. Another piece of advice that I would have is there are some men throughout history who have really grasped and lay hold of this concept. And you can see it in their writings where a, an apprehension and an awe and a wonder at the love of God for them it just kind of flows off of the page that they write. Uh, one guy who's like that, one man guy, I say informally, one man who's like that is John Owen. <clears throat> John Owen, of course, is difficult to read if you're reading original John Owen, kind of like, you know, if you're reading the 1611 King James, good luck with that. But it's the idea that, you know, if you read John Owen, you're going to find from him just this overwhelming sense 
to where you can feel as you read the page that he can barely contain his awe, his wonder at what God has done. And a particularly good book to read for that that deals with comprehending the love of God is a book called Communion with God. Mm. You can find that in his 12 volumes. But if you're not wanting to wade through John Owen's uh, style of writing back from when he was alive, Puritan Paper Books has an abridged and made easy to read version of that uh, called Communion with God. And he goes through the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and talking about the love of each three persons of the Trinity for his people. And it's a wonderful little book and a great starting place to complement reading scripture from that perspective as well, that I would, I would hardly recommend to anyone. Another one that's a little bit more modern um, that, that does the same thing is A.W. Tozer, particularly his Attributes of God. So it, that's that's one where where it's just like like I'm not I'm not one who's brought to tears often, but in reading that, I was brought to tears just in the way that he talks about who God is. So his attributes of God is a two volume work, but it's it's a pretty easy read, and I would I would highly recommend that one. Yeah. Uh, one last little bit of advice. Um, when you're doing your scripture reading through a particular passage and, and thinking through and taking your notes, pick a key verse and memorize the verse mm. so that you can take it forward and meditate on it throughout the course of the day so that you're not just leaving it there on the table or the nightstand or wherever your Bible ends up after you've read it, but that you're taking a key verse that sort of encapsulates all of those things. You memorize that so you can think about it throughout the day. So that's that's another another good little a good little trick, like a trick tip, another good little tip to keep these things in mind as we as we seek to know and understand the width, length, and depth and height of the love of God for us in Christ. Well, thank you for joining our discussion today. If you found this to be edifying, please consider sharing it with others. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.